Hey, thanks for tuning in to the Velocity Church podcast. We love hearing about life change in our church. So if you have a story about how Velocity has made a difference in your life, send us an email at amen at findvelocity.org. Now enjoy today's message. For our first scripture, I want us to look in in Mark chapter 16. Mark chapter 16. It's really one of the quintessential Easter scriptures. And if you didn't bring your Bible with you, uh, no worries. We'll put the words on the screen for you so we can all follow along together. And in Mark chapter 16, to kind of catch everybody up, where we're going to read in verse 1 is really, it's, it's Easter Sunday. Uh, Jesus has died on the cross. He's been buried for three days now. And at this point, it's, it's the day after the Sabbath. It's eight days after Passover. And some women who had been supporters of Jesus' ministry, they're on their way to the tomb to anoint Jesus' body. And uh, We're going to pick up in verse 1 where it says, When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, Who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, They saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. And as they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said, because often our first instinct is the wrong one. And he said, you're looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. Go ahead, look for yourself. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And that's exactly what these women did. With no real evidence, after this strange encounter, despite being able to explain this or defend what just happened, They leave and they go tell the disciples what they had just experienced. And I want to use these ladies as the starting point to introduce my subject to you today. And I want to speak to you from this thought, if you're taking notes, the benefit of the doubt. The benefit of the doubt. It's my custom to always pray before we get into God's word. So I would just ask if you feel comfortable, would you bow your head and pray with me? I want to ask for God's help. As we looked at his word this morning, and asked that God is going to help you receive it. God, we thank you so much for the opportunity to come into your presence, God, and the opportunity to remember and recognize what the empty tomb means for us. God, I ask that you would use me today. Speak to us. As we look to your word, you always speak, and I believe, God, that you're going to do it again. We thank you for it. Believe that you will in Jesus' name. And everybody who agrees with that can say amen. Hey, how many of you know that looks can be deceiving, right? Looks can be deceiving. Does anybody know that? Just wave at me so I know they can hear me. Uh, looks can be deceiving. I'm not talking like we talked about the chocolate bunny. That's one. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I recognize even, you know, some of you got your Easter best on. You, you don't always look this way. I get it. Looks can be deceiving, especially on today. I mean, April Fool's Day. Like, I, I'm going to be looking over my shoulder all day today because I know my kids are going to do their best to try and get me. Anybody get pranked already? Is there anybody? Uh, a couple of you. But when I say looks can be deceiving, I'm not really talking about the clothes you're wearing. I'm not talking about 
you know, your chocolate bunnies, or I'm, I'm not talking about even April Fools. I'm not even talking about uh, your old boyfriends. Looks can be deceiving. But uh, I'm, I want to talk about the behavior of my kids. Um, you saw in the video, I have four kids. And I tell you that for a reason. One, I want you to pray for me. Um, <laughs> two, because I think it makes me an expert on the human condition. Um, I, I, I see it played out in my house every day. Like after having four kids, I understand why some animals eat their young now. I mean, it's just <laughs> a lot easier. But uh, my, my kids, it's, it's crazy at my house. And you maybe saw a little bit of that. But my kids, they all have different personalities. Like my oldest son, Reese, uh, if he wants something from you, he, he's very logical and methodical in his approach. Like at our house, first thing, he's gonna make sure that his room is clean before he asks you anything. He's gonna think about what he wants, wants to do. He's gonna inquire of your needs, make sure that you're taken care of first before he asks something for himself. He will present his case to you. He will lay it out. He will ask questions, check for clarification, making sure that you understand just exactly what he's asking. Before he even gets to that point though, he will lay down a track record of good behavior just to put the odds in his favor. Um, that's, that's Reese, he, he's very logical, methodical, he's a processor. Uh, my, my youngest, my, my daughter, Pippa, now she has a completely different approach. She will just come up to you, grab your face, and start kissing you relentlessly until you give in to her affection. She learned it from her mom. Uh, both of them work on me, and uh, that's why my wife has two Easter outfits this, this year. And, uh, but I'm just saying it's a different, different approach. Now, uh, my youngest son, Grant, he, he, like, he's just direct. I mean, his name is Grant. I guess he just takes everything for granted is kind of the way he looks at it. Just grant me my, like, he's honestly oblivious to other people's needs. He really doesn't even pay attention. I mean, you saw the video, he's like, well, I figured you like me, so you're gonna like this. I mean, that's, that is him to a T. But I do have one more child, and uh, I don't wanna single him out and embarrass him, so I won't tell you his name, but his initials are Oliver Jenkins. And uh, <laughs> Oliver, now Oliver, he is my sneaky kid. Anybody ever have a sneaky kid or a sneaky brother? Like Oliver is my sneaky kid. He, he's, and I didn't teach him this. He just is this way. Like when he wants something from you, he will come up to you. He will act like he loves you, but he doesn't love, he is just working you. He's working you because he is sneaky. He is 100%. Like, like the other day he came up to me and, and he gave me the biggest hug and he said, Daddy, you're the best best daddy. I love you, daddy. Daddy, can I get you some candy? Now, he doesn't want, care if I can, want candy or not. I'm not even sure that he thinks I'm the best daddy. He just, the only thing he wants and the only thing he knows is that if he brings me candy, then he can take some for himself. He's, he's sneaky. He's very, very sneaky, this, this kid. And, uh, and like there was this other day, a few weeks ago, one of his teachers came up to me and, and, uh, and they said, Oh, your kids, they are so sweet at school. I, I love your kids. They're just so kind. They're, they're, they're great, especially Oliver. Oliver is the sweetest kid. He's so kind. He, he's a peer model for other students. I said, Oliver, are you sure? They're like, yeah, he, he's great. I, I said, no, you don't understand. Like, like, are there two Olivers in your class? Like, like you got to really... Like Oliver, he is not that way. He is working you. 100% he is working you. It's like, no, he, he, he's great. And I said, okay, well, thank you. Appreciate the compliments. Always nice hearing that. So I went home 
that day, and I talked to my son, I said, Oliver, I just talked to one of your teachers today. And do you know what they told me? They just went on and on about what a great student you are and how kind you are and how considerate you are. Can you believe that? And I kid you not, this was his response. I said, Oliver, can you believe that? He just looked at me and goes, <laughs> I know. And then he walked off. Like, I kid, he, he 100% did that. He's sneaky. Looks can be deceiving. That's what I'm saying. Looks can be deceiving. And, uh, you know, when we get to Easter, looks can be deceiving. Because it looked like the end, didn't it? When you looked at the cross, it looked like the end, but really it was just the beginning. And we celebrate Easter as a story of new beginnings, and that's appropriate. But when you look at it for what it was, it, it, it looked like a dead end. It looked like death. And you see it with every post-resurrection encounter. I won't take time to read them all to you, but if you ever, for yourself, you read the, the resurrection, uh, the, the events that happened post-crucifixion, after the resurrection, uh, the, the way the gospel writers did it, they have these different snapshots. It's honest, it's kind of like your Instagram feed. You get these different snapshots not necessarily in order, kind of, you know, like Instagram, the algorithm kind of messes everything up, but you just kind of see these different snapshots of, of events that happened. And what you see is, is that they all believed that hope was at a dead end. They all believed it was over. They, they put their hope in Jesus and they saw the cross, they saw the crucifixion, and now it was gone. That Their idea of this kingdom coming, they thought it wasn't gonna happen. They, they thought, that this is the end. You can see this in the events, how they played out, because I talked to you about the women going to the tomb, but while that's happening, if you read the different snapshots, the different encounters, like you see that the disciples, they were hiding out. They were hiding out for fear of their life. And I mean, you can kind of understand why, because they had just put to death their leader, the Messiah. They'd put to death their rabbi, who they had followed. So of course, the first thought in their mind is they're coming for us next. They're laying low. At this point, it's been three days. They think, you know, this, this is, nothing's gonna, you know, we gotta stay low in case something happens to us. Uh, another account you read about in Luke is there's these other two disciples, not of the 12 that are well known, but there's these other two disciples. When they see Jesus get crucified, they turn tail and run. They leave town, they ditch town. They head to a nearby place called Emmaus, and that's where they go. Even these women, as we look at them, what you can see, they didn't have a plan. I mean, they're heading to the tomb. They're like, what are we going to do when we get there? We don't know because there's a stone and we can't roll it away. You see again in the other gospel accounts, they were there. Like Jesus' body has already been anointed with, with oil and spices. It's already been wrapped up. It's already been dressed. They were there when they watched Nicodemus and they watched Joseph of Arimathea place his body in the tomb and they rolled the stone and covered it and they saw that the, the government, how they sealed it and stationed They saw all of that. They knew that was there. They, they didn't know what they did. They were just, we don't know what to do. I haven't ever been there where you feel like, I don't know what to do. Sometimes when we don't know what to do, we just revert back to doing something to, to what we can do. Like, I, like, you know, my wife, like she'll, 
when she's stressed out sometimes, like she'll just start cleaning the house. I don't know if anybody else is that way, uh, but just like, you know, we're not sure we're just gonna clean the house. And we have a very clean house. It makes me question how I'm doing it as a husband sometimes because uh, her house is so clean. She must be really stressed all the time. But, uh, but sometimes that's what we do. We, we just, I don't know what to do. I'm just gonna do, I just gotta do something. I just gotta be useful. I just gotta try and fix it. And what you see with every post-resurrection account with each person is that they thought it was over. Heaven in their mind had hit a dead end because their hope had hit a dead end. They looked forward to this day, this day when Jesus would establish his kingdom, this new kingdom, this new covenant on the earth, but it didn't happen the way they expected. Nobody expected to see this. Nobody expected to go down like this. Their hope was at a dead end. Their humanity was at a dead end. All of humanity, heaven was at a dead end. And I just wonder this morning, are you? Are you? Because you can be at a dead end in all sorts of different places in your life. You can be at a dead end in your relationships where you've done everything you know how to do for that person and they still won't love you back. And after you've done everything and you figure if they don't love me by now, I don't know what else I can do. You're at a dead end. You can be at a dead end in your resources or you've spent all of your money, you're broke, Put everything on every credit card. You've transferred this balance to that card, to another balance, to everything is unbalanced now. Your life is unbalanced and you have nowhere to run. You are at a dead end in your resources. You know, even in religion, religion can be a dead end. Where you've tried to change and you've made commitments and promises that you'll do better and you'll change, and this is the last time I'll ever do that. No, this is really the last, no, I'm really gonna kick it this time, I'm never gonna do that again. And then you do, and you lose hope that you're ever capable of experiencing real change. Well, if you're at a dead end this morning, I wonder if you know that in Jesus, dead ends are really doorways to new beginnings. See, this is the message that I came to preach to you today, that what you see is not the end. And I gotta tell you, I admire the disciples in this story. Maybe it's not the best to talk about the disciples, maybe more appropriate to talk about Jesus because this is Easter Sunday, this is Resurrection Weekend, but I, I just see the disciples in this story and I can relate to the disciples because I think, man, I don't know like, if I could have done everything that they did because man, if I put myself in their shoes, like, I don't know how I would have responded. So I see ways that I can relate to them and then some things that I couldn't do, reason to admire them. And like, I just, I don't know that I would have had faith on this one. Because I want to show you just again what, what that angel said to these women. He said, go tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Now see, I could have believed that if I wouldn't have watched them drive the nails into his hands. Like I, like I could have believed that Jesus was gonna meet me on that mountain if I wouldn't have seen him breathe his last breath on that cross. I, I could have believed that if I wouldn't have seen him take his body down, wrap it in strips of cloth and place it in the tomb. 
and then roll that stone in front of the tomb and then seal that stone so it couldn't be removed and then station. Like I could have believed that if I wouldn't have seen all that happen, but I saw it with my eyes. And I just, I just don't think I would have had faith like the disciples had. Because, I mean, these women come back and they tell the disciples what happened. And I mean, they must have had a lot of faith. I mean, they must have really trusted God. Because I want to pick up this story in Matthew. Again, same story, different snapshot, same story. But Matthew, he, he explains what happens. These women have this encounter. Uh, then they go back. They tell the disciples, you're never going to believe it. We went to the tomb. The tomb was empty. We saw this angel, and this is what happened. And he said, to tell you that Jesus says to go meet him here on this mountain. In Matthew 28, 16, says, so the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain Jesus had designated. No question, no second guessing, just obedience. And the next verse tells them when they got there that they saw Jesus. It says, so the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain Jesus had designated. And when they saw him, they worshiped him and believed. Now it's embarrassing. Had a typo in my notes. When they saw him, they worshiped him and it's supposed to be believed. Um, somebody playing an April Fool's joke on me up there? Does anybody, I, does anybody have a Bible? Like, does anybody have a Bible I can look at? I need to make sure I get this right. Do you have a Bible? Can you, use, can you find that? Matthew, Matthew 28. For, for me, can you find that? You, get, you got it? Anybody got it here? Matthew 28. You got it for me? All right. I, just, I need to make sure I got it right because. Um, Okay, 2816. So the disciples traveled to Galilee. Make sure this is a legit Bible. Okay, yeah, Holman Christian Standard versions. Just good. Okay, so, so it says, when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Now, this one's problematic too. Does anybody else have a different Bible that we can look at? You got the Bible? Let's see. What kind is this? This is this one. This is Student Study Bible, ESV. This one should, be, this one should have it. Okay, so it says that the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw, they, your Bible doesn't have it either. This is your, you can't trust those electronic Bibles, you know, those, that's, uh, those you know, new translations, all that kind of stuff. I'm just, I'm, I'm looking for the part where it says they saw him, they, they worshiped him, and believed. I mean, this is the greatest miracle in the history of humanity. They are eyewitnesses to it. And, and they, they doubted? Let me just check that again. How, how, could they, how could they still have their doubts after seeing it with their own eyes? They, they, they doubted? And say, so I wonder if this might be the word of the Lord for some of you today. Because I know you love God. And I know you want to live an honoring life. And, and I know you've probably even had some God moments that you can't explain. But you still have your doubts. And I think it's confusing for people 
who think that faith is the absence of doubt. But see, faith isn't the absence of doubt. You, you look at what these disciples did. They, they, it doesn't say that they didn't doubt. It just says that they did what they had to do even with the doubt in their heart. They, they just didn't let the doubt stop them. They still went to the mountain. They still worshiped. They didn't let the doubt stop them. And I want to say to you today, don't let the doubt stop you. Don't, don't let the doubt stop you. Of, of course you'll have doubts. Just don't let them be dead ends because there are so many of us that are standing at the dead end of a destiny that God wants to bring us into, but in order to go into it, we have to walk through a doorway called doubt. And see, like, I guess, I don't know, people assume because I'm a pastor or something that I'm not supposed to have any doubts. I, like, I don't get to, like, one of the things with the job. You're not allowed. But see, like, for me, faith has never been the absence of doubt. <laughs> like, I was doing this radio interview one time, and uh, this show was about uh, Christianity and, and faith, and the host of the show was asking me some different questions, and as we got into it, uh, he said this thing to me. He, he said, you know, I would like to have faith like you, but I, I guess I've always just kind of been that person who doubts, assuming that faith is the absence of doubt. But can I tell you for me, faith has never been the absence of doubt. For, for me, faith is not the absence of doubt. For me, faith is the means by which I overcome it. And see, real faith is the willingness to believe and stand, even when you can't see it, even when you can't feel it, even when you can't explain it. Sometimes we, we make this expression, we say this expression like, believe beyond a shadow of a doubt, or believe without a doubt. But there's not a one of us in this room who can really say we believe beyond a shadow of a doubt, who believe with, without a doubt. And I meet people who think they can never come to Christ because they've got doubts. They think that belief is the absence of doubt, but, but that hasn't been the case for me. I've got my doubts. I've got, I've got my doubts. Like I, I read that one scripture that says that if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation, old things are gone. Behold, all things have become new. But like for, for me, I, I, it's still in process in my life. I don't know if I'm alone. I still notice that there, there, there's still some moments where the old me comes out. I've got my doubts. I've read that verse that says, who the sun sets free is free indeed. But man, there are some times where I still feel bound by some stuff. I've got my doubts. Man, sometimes I struggle to, to, to feel like I'm forgiven. I mean, it's one thing to believe that he forgave me of all the past stuff that I did, but what about the stuff that I still do? Oh, is that not what you wanted to hear on Easter? <laughs> that the guy with the microphone has some doubts, still has some stuff, the present stuff he needs forgiveness of? I've got my doubts. 
And if you don't have any doubts, you have never read the Bible. Or at least you've read it without trying to apply it to your life, without trying to live it out. I, I, I've got my doubts. And a lot of people wait for their doubts to disappear before they take the next step of faith. But if the absence of doubt was a prerequisite to being used by God, Jesus should have never given the disciples the great commission to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. I don't know if you realize this, but let's read this whole thing in context. It says, so the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain Jesus had designated. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And then Jesus came up and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And remember, I'm with you always to the end of the age. I don't know if you saw that. But I'm thinking, Jesus, do you know who you're talking to? Like these are the same disciples that the moment that the pressure was turned up, the moment they saw you on the cross, everybody scattered. These are the same disciples that are hiding out for fear of their life. They don't want to go anywhere. Like one of these disciples, the moment somebody questioned him just about being associated with you, he denied it right out. Three times he denied it. These are the same disciples that instead of taking this gospel to the ends of the earth, they go back fishing. They go back doing what they know. These disciples, they are looking at the greatest miracle in the history of humanity. They are looking at the resurrected Jesus in the flesh, and they still have doubts. Are you sure these are the ones that you want to trust to take the gospel, to testify of this grace, to proclaim the good news? And the crazy thing about this, this wasn't the first time. If you read these, gospel, these resurrection accounts, what you discover is it's really like the fourth time. Because what happened was these women, they go to the tomb, see this angel or angels, say, hey, go tell the disciples. Disciples are in different places. There's the, there's the 11, right? But then there's other disciples, other followers. So they split up and they tell all these disciples what's happening. So they split up. Mary Magdalene, on her way to go tell the disciples, she's the first one we know of who encounters Jesus. She meets Jesus, they have this little conversation. He says, hey, go tell them just like what that angel said, I'm gonna go meet you on this mountain. She goes, and it says in Mark 16, 11, when they heard that Jesus was alive and that she had seen him, didn't believe it. Okay, well, that's just, I mean, you know, it's Mary. She had kind of, you know, her past kind of questionable, so maybe you can't believe her. Well, there were these other disciples, again, not of the 12, but the other disciples, I told you they were leaving town. Well, Jesus appeared to them too. And while they're walking on the way, he reveals himself to them. So they turn back to go tell the 11. And so it says, afterward, in verse 12 of Mark, afterward, Jesus appeared to a different form to two of them while they were walking in the country. They returned and reported it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. Okay, now we're gonna skip over to, Luke, look at another snapshot. Same encounter, okay? So it says, while they were saying all this, so who's they? You got Mary Magdalene, you got these other two disciples, and they are testifying that they have seen Jesus in the flesh. While they are saying all of this, 
Jesus appeared to them and said, peace be with you. And he continued, hey, don't be upset. Don't let all these doubting questions take over. Look at my hands, look at my feet. It's really me. As he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. They still couldn't believe what they were seeing. Okay, now picture this. You've got Mary Magdalene shows up. I've seen Jesus. Don't believe it. These other disciples show up. We've seen Jesus. They don't believe it. While they're all describing it, Jesus himself shows up, shows them his hands, shows them his feet. They don't believe it. Now let me read to you this verse again. It says, peace be with you. He appeared to them and he continued. He said, don't be upset and don't let all these doubting questions take over. See, often the first impulse when God shows up in your life is to question it. It's to question it. And maybe some of the questions you're facing is, how can I really be forgiven by someone who died on a cross before I was ever born? How can someone else's death really affect my life? God, how can you really use me? I'm, I'm, a, I'm a nobody. God, how can I move forward after this? How can I believe that God is gonna ever be good to me? But some of God's greatest gifts are on the other side of your doubt. Uh, on the other side of, I don't get it. On the other side of, I don't understand. Uh, on the other side of, why me? Uh, on the other side of, why this? Uh, on the other side of, what now? That's where the gift is. The greatest gift that God gives are wrapped in doubt and it's done for a reason. Because if you didn't have doubt, you wouldn't need faith. If you were certain of it, you wouldn't need faith. But he, he hides his promise in darkness. And he does it for a reason, because that's where faith is developed. He wants to develop your faith in the dark room. I found it so interesting that it said that when Jesus died, it was about noon and darkness came over the whole land until about three in the afternoon for the sun stopped shining and the curtain of the temple was torn into. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. The moment the hope of humanity hit a dead end, it was dark. It was dark because faith is developed in the darkness of doubt. Faith matures in the darkness of doubt. Faith matters in the darkness. So God is not gonna allow you to become so arrogant that you never have any doubts because if you never had any doubts, you wouldn't need him. If you never had any doubts, you wouldn't need faith. But faith isn't developed in your self-confidence. It's in your self-doubt that you learn to trust God. So you see, there's a benefit to the doubt. There, there's a benefit to having to trust God when it doesn't make sense. There's a benefit to believing God when it seems crazy. 
because that's where you discover the goodness of God. Not in your self-confidence, but in, in your doubt. Because, see, there's something that happened after this encounter. It says the disciples went, even though they were in fear, they went up to the mountain. Even though they had doubts, they went. They stepped out. They worshiped, even though they had doubts. But it was after this, we discover, even these doubting disciples, every single one of them ended up dying for their faith in Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? And you will never see the glory of God in your life if you stop here. If you stop with the where and the why and the who and the what and the how. If you wait till you have it all figured out to believe God, to trust God. If you wait till you're certain, if you wait till you have all of your questions answered, you will miss seeing the glory of God in your life. So this message, this is for the doubters. Because I believe this is a decision point for many people in this room. You wanna trust God, but you have your doubts. I wanna tell you today, don't let doubt stop you. This is your moment. God brought you here so you could place your faith in him. Doubts and all questions and all, conflicts and all. He, he wants you to receive the gift of salvation, but you can't receive it up here. You can't receive it just because you see it and you can't work with your hands to earn it. It is a gift. It is salvation. It is by grace through faith that you are saved. And so if you're here and you would say, like one man said to Jesus, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. God, I believe, but I feel unworthy. God, I believe, but I have my doubts. Can I tell you the grace of God is greater than any and every doubt? 